Amen. And we're thankful that you're using your gifts here too, Stacy. You're a huge blessing to us. <laughs> well, I love Stacy, and I also love biographies. Um, I'm sure many of you do as well. It's just neat to learn about people that went before us. Uh, it's especially fun to learn about Christian women, spiritually successful Christian women who went before us. Uh, I just read about a woman named Hannah Moore. I don't know if you've heard of her before. She was born in 1745 in England, and she was actually a best-selling playwright and author. Uh, at, in her time, her books outsold even the works of Jane Austen 10 to 1. And she was known for her brilliance, her wit, her ability to creatively use uh, language uh, to win people over and even persuade people. And she developed a close relationship with William Wilberforce. If you've heard of him before, he's a politician. He was a politician. He was an abolitionist. So he advocated for the eradication of slavery in Britain. And he was also friends with John Newton. Uh, and Hannah became friends with John Newton. John Newton was a pastor, also an abolitionist. He wrote the hymn that everybody knows, Amazing Grace. Uh, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Well, Newton was involved in slave trade. So he really knew what it meant to be a wretch. And William Wilberforce enlisted Hannah to help him, so to speak, you know, in this uh, quest to eradicate slavery from England. And he went before Parliament, and he would advocate before Parliament, and he asked her to really reach the elites, the social elites, with her uh, ability to use words and win people over. Uh, she wrote a poem, a 294-line poem that was published in 1788 called Slavery. And she very uh, skillfully used words to reveal the horrors of kidnapping and enslaving human beings. And she pointed out how this was absolutely inconsistent with the biblical principles uh, that were called to as Christians. So she had this great skill in crafting words, and it was used to open up the eyes of many in Britain. Eventually, Parliament did uh, vote to abolish slavery, and history records that part of that decision was due to the writing and the work of Hannah Moore, her passionate and persuasive use of words. She was called to extraordinary work. But you know, it's not just Hannah Moore that's called to extraordinary work or unusual work or work that's marked by excellence. Uh, if we're followers of Christ, we're called to extraordinary work too. And maybe we'll see that unfold as we work through our text uh, this week. This week, we're going to just look at Exodus 31 1 through 11, Exodus 31, 1 through 11, and, you know, uh, see if there isn't something that you can take away from this and uh, really maybe just expand uh, your view of what it is that God has called you to do. 
Exodus 31, 1 through 11. Let me read it together with you. It begins with uh, Yahweh said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahizamech of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony and the mercy seat that is on it and all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils and the pure lampstand with all its utensils and the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils and the basin and its stand, and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests, and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place. According to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. So uh, before we look at this, let's just back up for a couple seconds and think about the fact that we saw that God had delivered his people, saved his people from slavery in Egypt, and after that, he gave them the Ten Commandments, uh, the Ten Commandments, the moral code for living. And then he gave the rest of the law to Moses, and the people heard the law, they agreed that it was good, and they said they will obey. They wanted to obey. And then God called Moses up again and gave him further instructions. Now that he had saved his people, he wanted a relationship with them. He wanted them to have a tangible way that they would know that his presence was there with them. And so he instructed Moses in how to build the tabernacle. Uh, it was again a place where God's uh, glory could dwell with his people. And when we get to Exodus 31, verses 1 through 11, Moses is still on the mountain with God. Uh, he's still receiving these instructions. He's been there since the end of Exodus 24. He's been there since Exodus 24, 18, where it says Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So we saw in Exodus 25 through 30 that God carefully laid out all the materials that needed to be used for the construction of the tabernacle. And these were some extraordinary materials. And God said when it's time to make the tabernacle, it's going to require extraordinary workmanship. And that's what we see here in the passage. If we look again at the first six verses of Exodus 31, uh, God's saying, I've called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the spirit of God, ability, intelligence, knowledge, craftsmanship, uh, so that he could devise artistic designs, uh, working in gold and silver and bronze, cutting stones for setting, carving wood, every craft. Also appointed Aholiab, the son of Ahizamech of the tribe of Dan, and given all men 
all able men ability uh, that they may all make all that God had commanded them. So God gave these instructions to Moses, and if Moses said, great, I've got the blueprints, I'm going to get a hammer and a saw and go down there, it's like God said, no, <laughs> Moses, this isn't your job. I have gifted people, chosen men who are gifted in things like sawing and building and sewing and metalworking and engraving and stone cutting to make this, to make this beautiful structure uh, where my glory can dwell. And again, we might think, well, why? Why all this fuss about the materials that were to be used and the gifted workmanship that was to go into it? Uh, the reason why is that the tabernacle was to be a beautiful structure. It was to be a beautiful structure because it was going to house the glory of God. Uh, God humbly said that he would allow his visible presence to dwell there, to encourage his people and let them know that he was with them. So it was a place where God's people would be reminded of the beauty of their Savior every day. The beauty of their Savior that now wanted a relationship with them. So the first point to pull away from this in the first six verses is admire true beauty. I mean, we see true beauty here. Admire true beauty. Uh, David said uh, basically the same thing in Psalm 27, verse 4. Psalm 27, verse 4, it says, One thing have I asked of Yahweh. Wow, what is the thing that you've asked of Yahweh? That I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of Yahweh all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of Yahweh and to inquire in his temple. So David wanted to be in the temple, in the place where God's beauty resided, that he would see the beautiful face of his Lord and his Savior. And when we admire true beauty, uh, we're really admiring God because God is both the source and the standard of all that is truly beautiful. I mean, think about this. If we go way back to the beginning, to Genesis, uh, Genesis 2, verses 8 and 9, for example. Genesis 2, verses 8 and 9. Uh, in Genesis 2, 8, it says, And Yahweh God planted a garden. I mean, think about that. God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, Yahweh, God, made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight, is beautiful and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I mean, we can't even begin to imagine what the beauty of the garden must have been like, the garden that God himself planted. So we have these uh, two men Bezalel and his co-leader or his assistant, Aholiab, who were filled with God's spirit. They were enabled by God's spirit to work in sync with God's design, God's will, God's plan for the construction of the tabernacle. Now, they weren't just zapped with ability. It's not like they never knew how to use a saw 
or a hammer. Uh, they had intelligence and knowledge and craftsmanship that had already been given to them by God, but the Spirit, again, allowed them to work exactly as God wanted them to work to produce the tabernacle that would glorify him. We see the Spirit, in a sense, doing the same thing, working creatively in the first two verses of the Bible. If we think back to Genesis 1, 1 and 2, Genesis 1, 1 and 2, it says, in the beginning, God created. He created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. So formless and void, empty and darkness. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And we know that the Spirit of God created uh, took from formlessness, voidness, darkness, and created beauty, and it was good. And we know that the same chapter, Genesis 1, teaches that we too were created by God, uh, and we were created in his image. We bear the image of this creator, Genesis 1.27 says. And you, when we admire beauty, uh, it really resonates with us that we have been created in the image of God because God is the creator, the source, again, of true beauty. And there's something within us uh, when we see something that is truly majestic and beautiful that uh, brings us back to the fact that we stand before a beautiful God and Savior. And I'm sure you've all experienced this at one time in your life. I know uh, I recently experienced it when I went to Haleaka National Park. Uh, it's in Maui. And when you go to Maui, you don't think about taking like down jackets and heavy pants. But if you're going to go to Haleaka National Park, you need to bring those. Because it's about a two and a half, three hour drive up to a crater in the center of Maui. And up there, people go, you have to get a ticket, and people go up there and get there really early in the morning to see the sunrise. Uh, they say that it's the most beautiful sunrise on the planet. And I went up there with my family, we got there before the sun came up, and just seeing the stars alone was a humbling experience. I mean, here we don't get to see the stars as we should, but standing there marveling at the creation, the universe, just realizing the beauty of the Lord. And then, you know, waiting there where it's like 25, 35 degrees in Maui for the sun to rise up and then seeing that sun come up, lifting up over the ocean, over the island of Maui, it is awe-inspiring. It is so gorgeous and so beautiful that you stand there absolutely humbled before the beauty of the Lord and his creation. And we see that expressed in Psalm 19. Psalm 19 verse 1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Uh, to declare is to communicate or to speak forth. Uh, these things really uh, just speak forth that this is the glory, the beauty of the Lord. And it says, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So as we're thinking about admiring true beauty, it's important to ask ourselves in our busyness, when was the last time you got a chance to really stop 
and notice the beauty that's all around us. Because when we do that, it, it does humble us. It humbles us. We realize who we are before this amazing creator. And it causes us to really long for beauty in our own work. It inspires that desire for beauty in the things that we do because true beauty isn't found only in creation. It's also found in man-made things. It can be found in things like painting, writing, poetry, music, computer software design, uh, spreadsheets and charts. You can see the order, the organization, the beauty of the Lord. Uh, when man-made work is done with excellence, it really reflects or points us to the beauty of our Creator. And we see that in the text because the tabernacle was something that was man-made. It was man-made. And it was made to be attractive. Uh, look back at Exodus 31, verses 7 through 11, and look at all the pieces that are here. The tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony, the mercy seat, the furnishings of the tent, the table, the pure lampstand, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering, the basin, the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron, the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense. All of these things were made by man, but they were made to be attractive. Uh, Bezalel and Aholiab were to see that these things were made beautiful and made to be attractive. And so that's the second point here from verses 7 through 11 is make things attractive as Bezalel and Aholiab did. Now, I'm going to take a second to look at these things and I would ask that you don't try to take notes on this because you already know all this. We saw all of this in Exodus 25 through 30, but I just want you to kind of envision in your mind uh, the beauty, the attractiveness of these pieces that these men were responsible for the oversight of, that they were entrusted with making. Now, when you approach the tabernacle, the outside of the tabernacle, there was uh, the tent for the courtyard. Uh, that tent was 75 feet by 150 feet. There were 20 bronze poles on the long side and 10 bronze poles on the short side. And when the worshiper would approach the tent from the east, there were linen panels that were made from blue and purple and scarlet with embroidery and would have been stunning to look at. Uh, those panels were around the courtyard of the tabernacle and would have really drawn people in. And then the te text talks about the tent of meeting. The tent of meeting or the tabernacle itself was 15 feet high so that all would see it. And it had four layers of coverings protecting it. Uh, there was first linen there and then goat hair. And then it said ram skin that was dyed red. And finally, some kind of a marine animal skin to protect the tabernacle from the elements, from dew and rain and water. And then, you know, inside that tabernacle, there was this veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. 
And the veil was hung on four pillars of acacia wood, uh, blue, scarlet, purple linen it was made from. And it had uh, cherubim, uh, angels that had wings embroidered into these, uh, these veils, this material. The Jewish historian Josephus says that that veil was four inches thick. And he said, if you put one horse on one side of the veil and another horse on the other side of the veil and attached them and had them run in opposite directions, they would not be able to rip it. Uh, it was so beautiful and thick and a reminder of our separation from God. And you have the most holy place there where the Ark of the Covenant was. And the most holy place was a perfect cube. It was 15 feet long by 15 feet wide by 15 feet high, pointing us to the new Jerusalem that Revelation says will also be a perfect cube. And then in there was, the text says, the Ark of the Testimony. And that was the central focus of the tabernacle because that's where God humbly allowed his visible glory to dwell again, so that his people would know that he was there with them. And it was made from acacia wood and overlaid with gold. And on top of that ark, there was the mercy seat. Uh, the mercy seat was like a lid or a covering from the, of the ark. It was three feet, nine inches long by two feet, three inches wide, and it was made from pure gold. And on top of that mercy seat, there were cherubim, winged cherubim facing one another that were made from, again, pure gold. And this is the place where God would have mercy on his people or forgive his people for their sins. And then there were the furnishings of the tent in the holy place. Uh, the text says that there was the table and its utensils. Uh, the table was made from acacia wood and overlaid with gold. It was three feet long by one and a half feet wide by two and a quarter feet high. Uh, it had poles for transportation that were also overlaid with gold. And on it were plates and pitchers that were made from gold. And these plates were to place the 12 uh, loaves of bread on that represented the 12 tribes of Israel and that God would provide them with bread. He would provide for them. And then there was the pure lampstand and its utensils. Uh, the text talks about the pure lampstand, and it was uh, beaten out of one solid piece of gold that weighed 75 pounds. And it was to burn high-quality olive oil. Uh, there was a central shaft coming up, and then six branches, three on each side, and the bulbs at the top of the branches or the lamps, the seven of them, uh, were designed in the shape of an almond flower. Jewish tradition says that the lampstand was five feet high and three and a half feet wide, and they say the lampstand alone would have been a work of art, just awe-inspiring to behold. Uh, there was also the altar of incense inside the holy place. 
It was made from acacia wood overlaid with gold. It was right between uh, the veil, right between, right next to the veil that led from the holy place into the most holy place. It was one and a, uh, one and a half feet long by one and a half feet wide by three feet high and had four horns on the corners. It also had rings for poles, poles that were overlaid with gold, and the priests would burn incense on this altar every morning and every evening uh, as a reminder of the prayers of the priests and the people going up before our beautiful Lord. And then out, uh, more visible to the people in the courtyard, in the area outside of the tabernacle, there was the altar of burnt offering. This was a huge altar, seven and a half feet uh, long by seven and a half feet wide, four and a half feet high, and it was made from acacia wood overlaid with bronze, with a bronze grill or a bronze grating there uh, where they would place the offerings. It was the first thing that people would see when they entered into the tabernacle structure, when they entered into the courtyard. Uh, the finest animals were to be sacrificed there. Only the best was to be brought to the Lord, whether it was animals or the first of the grain offering. There were shovels that were made to remove the ash and pitchforks to move the sacrifice around. There were censers to carry the coal and sprinkling bowls to uh, relocate the blood uh, from the sacrifice to the mercy seat. And there was also, uh, before the tabernacle structure, the bronze basin, the basin in the stand, the text reminds us of. And it was a large basin, and it was made from donated bronze mirrors. Uh, the women of Israel donated their bronze mirrors to make this bronze basin, and they say that it would gleam as bright as the sun. Uh, as these priests would wash their hands after making the offering before they went into the holy place. And they had to wash. The text in Exodus says that if they didn't wash, they would die because it was a reminder of them, their need to be cleansed before approaching their beautiful God. And then the finely worked garments, they were also responsible for overseeing the work of these garments for Aaron, the high priest, and his sons. And the high priest would wear a white linen tunic. It was woven in one piece. And over that, he would wear a blue woven robe. And on that robe at the bottom, there would be pomegranates, like balls down at the bottom, made from blue and purple and scarlet. And in between the pomegranates, there were bells on his robe. And over that, he wore an ephod. And the ephod was like an apron uh, made of gold and purple and scarlet. And there were shoulder pieces on the ephod uh, made from black onyx and inlaid in gold. And the six, six of the tribes of Israel were named on one shoulder piece and six of the tribes of Israel were named on the other, being represented to God. There was also a sash around the waist and then the breastplate piece, which they say was about uh, eight by 10, eight to 10 inches in a perfect square. And it housed four rows of three stones, 12 stones, 12 different beautiful stones total that were cut perfectly and engraved to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, two rings at the top end of the breastplate 
breastplate to attach it to the shoulders. And then the high priest would wear a crown, a, a turban. And inscribed on front of the turban was the words, holy to the Lord. And then there was this special anointing oil that was made. Uh, it was to anoint the priests and the furniture. It was never to be replicated or used for any other purpose. And then there was the smell of the fragrant incense, a specific mixture, a beautiful smell that was to be offered by the priest. So when we put all of these things together and think about it, it was brilliant. It was gorgeous, and its construction was overseen by Bezalel and Aholiab. And with all this gold and silver and bronze, you might think, where did they get all that? Where did they get all of that material? And Exodus uh, tells us where they got that. You can take notes again if you want. <laughs> Exodus 12:36 says, Yahweh gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so they let them have what they asked, thus they plundered the Egyptians. That was all the way back in Exodus 12. Uh, so God allowed them to take from the Egyptians. He gave it to Israel so that his people could give back to him. And, you know, we think about that. Have we ever considered that God has graced us with money and resources so that we too can give back to him? So God took chapters and chapters of text to explain all of these things, but it was up to these men to make sure that it was done and it was done in a way that was attractive. And you might be thinking right now, this is Beautiful and wonderful and great, great for Beziel and Aholiab. But I am not the creative type. Uh, I don't make things, let alone make things that are attractive. <laughs> well, I might uh, disagree with you on that. I might say, you know what, you do. You do. Every time we arrange the furniture in a room, we have the potential to make something attractive. Every time we prepare a meal or fold our laundry or dress ourselves or dress our children or type out a document, we have the opportunity to make it attractive. Are we going to make the room or the food or our clothing look attractive or are we going to be sloppy and careless about it? You know, we see this principle in the New Testament. Uh, Titus 2, chapter 9, or Titus 2, verses 9 and 10. Titus 2, 9 and 10. Uh, it has an interesting word in here. It says uh, in verse 9, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. Why? So that in everything so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior, adorn the gospel, uh, make the gospel attractive, make it look good by their behavior, by what they do. That word adorn there, it means to make it neat or to decorate it. Uh, it's actually the Greek word cosmeo, from which we get cosmetics. It's to make it look good, make the gospel look good. When we make things attractive or we make them look good, we're in a sense pointing them 
to God, the God of beauty, to the gospel. And we really don't have to be super creative to do this. And, you know, this whole concept really clicked for me years ago when I read a, a book by the wife of one of my favorite theologians. Uh, one of my favorite theologians is Francis Schaeffer, and his wife, Edith, wrote a book uh, called The Hidden Art of Homemaking. And there was something that she recorded in there that really helped me to see uh, how I could be a part of this, how I could be someone that made things attractive and why it was so important that I adorn the gospel this way. Uh, she said that um, when they were younger and they had kids and her husband Francis had just graduated from seminary, uh, they lived in a city where there was a railroad track right by their house. And back then, there were lots of bums or hobos that used to ride the railroad. She said they would attach themselves to, you know, the cars, the bottom of the cars, and then they would get off, and they would come to these homes near the railroad track and knock on the door and ask for a handout. She said these were usually unkempt men, just scraggly looking, you know, and really in need of food. So they would come to her door and say, do you have any coffee or bread? And, uh, you know, she, she wouldn't want to invite them in the house. I mean, that would not be wise. She was there. She had young kids there. But she didn't want to turn them away either. So what she would do is ask them to stay outside, and she would go to her refrigerator uh, to get them something. And she said that she would usually find soup from a leftover meal or some bread, something to make something. And as she would do that, she would ask herself, I wonder what sort of home he had when he was a little boy. And then she said she would think about that and she would make uh, a BLT, a sandwich with uh, tomato and bacon and lettuce and she would make a sandwich with cream cheese and walnuts, and she would put it on nicely and cut the sandwich perfectly along the diagonal, and she would arrange it nicely on the plate and put a little pickle there on the side, and then she would ask her children to go outside in the garden and collect a few leaves and flowers, and they would come in and carefully place it on the plate. And she said one time her daughter said, what will he think? when he gets the plate. And she said, perhaps he'll remember something in his past. Perhaps he had a very nice home once where he had meals prepared for him. Anyway, he will stop and think and will give him this little gospel of John to read while he is eating. He can take it away with him and who knows, perhaps he'll do a lot of thinking and someday believe. Anyway, he may realize that we care about him as a person, and that is important. And she would take out the tray, and she said the hobos would respond, for me? Is this really for me? She was adorning the gospel, making that plate attractive, allowing her kids to do it with her. And it was revealing to the hobo or the bum that they were created in the image of God. And they, even though they were unkempt and uh, broken in society, they had value and they had worth. 
And it wasn't because she gave him a handout, but it's the way that she did it. It reflected the beauty of our creator and had the potential to awaken something within them. And that kind of beauty resonates, again, even with the most broken in society. It resonates with all of us. I mean, think about even your husband when he comes home from a long day at work. If you just slap the food down on the plate, would he be encouraged if maybe you presented it neatly and lit a candle there? Or put a couple flowers from the garden in a little vase bud and set it by his plate? You might think, oh, he wouldn't care. I hear that all the time. Guys don't care. They don't care about the way things look. Guys will eat anything. <laughs> Are you sure about that? I talked to my husband and he totally disagrees. So I know not every guy doesn't care about how it looks or what they're being fed to eat. Uh, obviously, men like uh, Bezael and Aholiab, they cared. What about uh, Matthew 6, 28 through 30? Matthew 6, 28 through 30, we looked at this uh, a couple weekends ago at the retreat uh, when we were looking at the topic of anxiety and how God clothes the lilies of the field and the grass, which is up today and gone tomorrow. Uh, but there's kind of a, a sub-theme there in all of this in Matthew 6, 28 through 30, where Jesus said to the people, why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Then he said, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? I mean, implied in there is the fact that God doesn't want his people to look sloppy or unkempt. Uh, how much more will he clothe you? You know, and you might think, well, I, I don't have money to spend on clothing. I'm on a really tight budget. And that's okay. Jesus would say that's okay, but do the best with what you have, and God will honor it. Sometimes our problem isn't that we don't have enough, but we just have too much. I mean, there's so much clutter all around us. Sometimes we need to just get rid of the clutter so that the beauty around us can shine through. As Christians, we know that true beauty is from the Lord and found in the Lord. And so we can wrongly pull away from things that are beautiful, uh, thinking that, you know, it's more godly to do that. But it's not a biblical concept. Think about what Colossians 2, 20 through 23 says. Colossians 2, 20 through 23 says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? And these were philosophical regulations at the time that said that, you know, we should, uh, as spiritual people, stay away from things that are attractive or beautiful. Uh, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. Uh, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they're of no value 
in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So this idea that asceticism or abstaining from physical and social needs, uh, withholding true beauty from ourselves is somehow more godly. Uh, Paul saying to the church at Colossae, it's just not true. And it's easy for us to get mixed up on these things because we all know, we all know that true beauty is found in the heart. That's what Peter teaches, 1 Peter 3, 3 through 5, when he says, do not let your adorning be external, and that means merely external, because otherwise he'd say, don't be wearing any clothes at all. So he's saying, do not let your adorning be merely external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. An excellent heart, an extraordinary heart, an extraordinary attitude is a foundation for extraordinary work. And we see that here. I remember years ago working on a project here at Compass with a friend and uh, somehow just getting really uh, upset about the quality of the project that was being produced. And the friend saying to me, but we're supposed to do excellent work. And I remember looking at the friend and saying, don't you think God would prefer an excellent attitude? And we both looked at each other and just laughed. I mean, you know, there are those times that we get so caught up in the excellence of work that we miss the attitude or the heart. And if we find ourselves in that place, it's time to kind of just push the reset button and say, okay, let's let it go and either walk away or start again. But you know, there are things that we can do to make ourselves attractive that don't cost anything. And one of them is just to smile. I mean, a smile really goes a long way especially when we're interfacing with the watching world. If you are thinking to yourself, you know, if I start thinking about this, about making things attractive, I'm going to end up on a Martha track. And, you know, I have the potential to do that. We all have the potential to do that. But I don't think that that's what Martha was doing here. It wasn't that she was concerned with making things attractive. She was distracted with too much. Uh, Jesus taught that she was distracted with doing things that he hadn't called her to do. It was too much work. It was too much that she was anxious and troubled about. And that's where we need to stop and think to ourselves, you know, am I saturated in too much? Am I watching too much TV or spending too much time on my phone or too much time on the internet so that I don't have the time to put any effort into making things attractive? Uh, is my calendar so heavy laden with things to do that Christ has never called me to do that I don't have the time to do anything with excellence? We got to think of our motive or why we're doing what we're doing. Why did Bezalel and Aholiab do what they did? Well, they did it for the Lord. And we need to do it for the Lord too out of obedience to God. And we see that in the very last line of Exodus 31.11. The last line there, Exodus 31.11, 
says, according to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. Uh, they did it because that's what God called them to do. And that's the same thing we should do. Uh, we need to do it all for Jesus. And that's the third and final point. Do it all for Jesus. That's what we learn in the New Testament. The New Testament, Colossians 3, 22 through 24. Colossians 3, 22 through 24 says, uh, bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. That text reminding us that in whatever we do, we're really serving Jesus. When we're cleaning our house or making meals or changing a diaper, we're not serving a person, but we're serving Jesus. We see Jesus taught the exact same thing in Matthew 25, 35 through 40. Jesus said the same thing. Matthew 25, 35 through 40, he said, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous, the righteous answer him saying, what? Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Ultimately, we're not serving man but we're serving Jesus. When we clean our house, we can think, how would I clean this house if it was Jesus's house? How would I prepare and present a meal for King Jesus? How would I change this diaper with what attitude if I knew that it was the diaper of the Lord? Extraordinary work, no matter how mundane or how meaningless is noticed by God, and it will receive an extraordinary reward. Bezalel and Aholiab did this extraordinary work as God had commanded them. And the tabernacle ended up built just as God desired. Uh, Exodus 39:32 says, All the work of the tabernacle, of the tent of meeting, was finished. And the people of Israel did according to all that Yahweh had commanded Moses, so they did. Well, think about the tasks that God has assigned you. And as Pastor Mike has said, do we go the extra mile? Do we stay the extra hour or spend the extra dollar? I love what Philip Graham Riken wrote. He said, the way in which a Christian who makes a car glorifies God is not by painting John 3.16 on the hood. He said, rather, he glorifies God 
by making a good car. Let's glorify our beautiful Savior, not with just good work, but with extraordinary work. Let's pray. God, thank you so much uh, for the opportunity to gather here as women and explore, think through, consider uh, the truths that are tucked in to Exodus 31, 1 through 11, uh, to consider, Lord, that you are a God of beauty. Uh, you are the standard and the source of all that is truly beautiful. And I pray, God, that you would help us to slow down and just admire your beauty more, Lord. And God, I pray that that would be reflected in what we do, that we would choose to make things attractive, uh, whether it's a beautiful painting or a spreadsheet or a song, or a meal, or in changing a diaper, God. In whatever it is that we do, that we would make it attractive, God, knowing that we can adorn the gospel that way and really reach the heart of humanity, pointing them back to you, their creator, the one whose image that they bear, no matter how broken they are, Lord. And God, I pray that we would do everything for Jesus, that we would see that everything that we do as your daughters is an opportunity to do it for you, Lord. God, we know that everything we do is only because of you. We know if it weren't for Jesus, we would be absolutely broken and have nothing. And so we close our prayers always in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys are dismissed to your groups.